God save the Queen! Hello and welcome back to Pod Save the Queen. I am your host, Anne Gripper, and it is finally time for all of your questions about the royal family to be answered. We asked you to send in your questions to the show, and boy, did you deliver some great ones. We are delighted to be joined today. Well, it was a couple of weeks ago now that we actually recorded the episode, but we were joined by longtime royal reporter Robert Jobson. Russell often refers to him as as Jobbo when we're talking about it. They know each other from the royal circuit and it was great pleasure to have Robert on. He has just written the Haynes Royal Family Operations Manual so he knows all the ins and outs and the workings of how, how everything functions and keeps the show on the road and we also talked a little bit about his experience covering the royal family. Do listen out as well because there is a competition. He will be giving away five assigned copies of his new book. So listen to the show for more details of how to enter. So now over to your questions. Welcome to the show, Robert. Hello and welcome um, and thanks so much for having me on. So the reason I got in touch with, uh, with Robert via his publishers, I saw he posted a fabulous picture on his birthday showing off the new book that he has, um, he has published, which is an operations manual, essentially how the royal family works. So you have sent in loads and loads and loads of questions to answer all of those burning bits of nitty gritty to really find out what goes on behind the scenes and how things all work. But first, Robert, I'd love to hear, you've been on the Royal Beat for, for quite a long time now, but how did, how did you come into it and, and what, was it, what was it like when you first started out? Well, I started out about 30 years ago covering the Royals when I was a, a reporter on the Sun newspaper, which was um, when Kelvin McKenzie was the editor, a very famous Fleet Street editor, he'd um, just got rid of his previous Royal Reporter and um, I was offered the Poison Chalice, as it was called. So I started that way, but I'd always been interested in the Royal Family. I did history at university and read, read at university. Um, that. So in a way, I was, I was quite intrigued by it. And at the time, it, it looked, I look back now and it's, uh, it's historic, really, because, um, you know, I was covering at the height of the Diana and Charles crisis. I was... I met some of the key players involved and knew, you know, met Princess Diana several times. So now I look back and that's sort of very historic moments, really. Um, and so it, it was um, a bit of a baptism of fire. We were, you know, jumping on planes, flying around the world. I was there at the Taj Mahal when she sat uh, uh, there in front of that great monument to love and in front of the pyramids and all these big moments and you look back now and you think oh they were huge but at the time it was a bit of a, a roller coaster ride a bit of a whirlwind and very enjoyable but also quite stressful because you're always up against um, you know the Daily Mirror people like James Whitaker the late James Whitaker is a, a great Diana Royal reporting in his time and and other reporters that were you know on the top of their game and I was quite a young guy thrown in at the deep end and it was sink or swim. So is there a particular story that you got back in those early days that you're really proud of? And you're like, oh, yes, I've, this is it. I am, I am on the beat. I've arrived. Well, funny enough, it was on the day one, uh, I, I got a, in those days, there was an awful lot of call-ins from the public to the newspapers. It was less social media, or well, there was no social media. There was, le you know, it was less of an online world. 
And so a lot of people used to phone in with their stories to um, newspapers. On the very first day I started, I had a phone call saying, picked up the phone in the newsroom in the sun and it said there's been drugs found on Princess Anne's plane. And I thought, oh, well, that's really strange. And they've all been kicked off the plane. So I made a couple of phone calls and it was verified to be the truth. And the next thing you know, it was a splash um, in the paper. So that literally it started with the, started like that. But there were certain stories, big stories, like, you know, I, I broke the story that, that Diana was going to go to the Taj Mahal and would be there alone, even though um, there was, it was the greatest monument to love and that Charles had sworn that he would return there as a bachelor with the woman he loved, etc. So all of these things, um, you know, are, are memorable, but um, it's the travel more than anything else. You were going around the world at high speed, usually turning left on the plane, and it was amazing, you know, you were seeing history unfold in front of your eyes. And what was Princess Diana like? She's obviously still, even for royal fans who have started following the royal family since her death, she remains a very kind of present figure within the royal family, partly because of how important she has been for William and Harry and how much they continue to talk about her and also how much she changed the way the royal family worked, really, both through the work that she did and then the breakup of her marriage to Charles. Well, yeah, I do find it funny when I watch the television, I see a lot of reporters that were probably not even at school when talk about Diana as if they knew her. I mean, I, I'm probably the only reporter, apart from a couple of the staffers and Richard Kay that were around at the time. And, you know, she, she was an awe-inspiring woman. And when she walked in, into a room, she certainly lit it up. She was had a great presence. Um, even then, you knew you were in the presence of someone very, very special. Um, probably more, maybe it's because I was younger, but certainly more so than many of the new members of the royal family as the people have seen them. I, I don't think it has quite the same magic as it did with Diana because she was a one-off. Um, I was lucky enough to get to know her protection officer, Ken Wolf, very well. We wrote a book together that was in 19, 2001 after she died, 2002, it was published. Um, called Diana Closely Guarded Secret that was number one bestseller and I felt we were both able to remember a lot of the things that were going on when we were writing that book so yeah and it still sells today because I think she was such an enigma I mean she wasn't always easy and Ken would admit that as well and difficult with me if you got something wrong or she didn't like what you wrote she'd let you know I mean on a couple of occasions she did that to me I remember being in Australia when she came up and said I got it wrong which I don't think I did I think I got it 100% right, which was more to the point that she didn't like something that had been written. So um, she could be difficult, um, but she was an amazing character and certainly someone was who broke new ground in terms of the way the royal family behaved and, and certainly the way that the royal family, I think she certainly guided uh, William and Harry as to the guys that they became because um, she did things in a very different way, such as going to see the homeless at Centre Point, going to you know actually show them the other side of life that they would not otherwise have experienced and it's interesting because it sounds like you landed on the royal beat sort of just before Annas Haribalis kicked in and I think it's yeah it's, 1990 I started in 1990 so it's this past sort of 12 months or so has probably been the hardest for the royal family since that period what have you made of the last year or so well it, it certainly doesn't compare to Anna Cerebellus I mean the whole 
time, I'm sure if Her Majesty was sitting next to me here and someone said, which was the worst time the last 12 months around Anna Cerebellus, she would say Anna Cerebellus because the, the royal family was really under pressure. Then we had the issues of the, the fire um, at, at Windsor, which was devastating. But, you know, her entire family, the structure of family with her, you know, two older sons, um, Charles and Andrew, both their marriages falling apart. Also, Princess Anne's marriage um, going as well. So it wasn't a great time for the royal family. It was very, very difficult. And then leading, you know, there wasn't a day really when they weren't on the front page um, of the tabloids. And it was a difficult, very difficult time for the Queen. She was very pragmatic about it, but um, it was very difficult. And I think that the last 12 months, I know there's been issues, and yes, there have been problems, you know, but I don't think they've been in the same way affecting the actual um, constitution. I mean, when you have a divorce of um, the heir to the throne and the future queen, that's a much bigger implications than um, the story on Harry and Meghan, or um, because they're so far down the, the totem pole in terms of the, um, in terms of the, uh, uh, you know, where, are they ever going to become the king and queen? They're not. So they're, are they implicating against the, having any implications to the constitution? No, not really at all. So people that are comparing it to the abdication crisis have got it completely wrong, of course, because, you know, they're not, they're, they're too far down the pecking order. Interesting. Well, I think, I know that it will be very interesting to see how their, their future life and their future roles evolve. Have you got any particular thoughts about what you would like to see them do or any advice that you're, you would give Mary them? Harry and Meghan, it was very yeah. funny because when, when, um, I mean, I know Harry fairly well. I've known him since he was a little boy, and I, you know, I broke the story that he was quitting the army and, and, and various stories along the way. Um, and I remember <laughs> doing a podcast, actually. Uh, there, are, there is another one, um, apart from this one, but I remember doing it with somebody else. And um, I said in early December that I thought that the Andrew situation, the fact that he'd been forced to effectively retire from public life meant that it probably meant that Harry and Meghan would find a, a different path. They'd end up on the west coast of America and, and some other solution would be found and they'd have a different way of doing things. And I don't know if I was looking into crystal ball or, or it just came to my mind, but it, it, you know, it's all unfolded. And I do think it's fair enough for them to have a different line because I think in many ways, um, the royal family probably does need to be more streamlined and more focused. And you know, and I think that if you're not really ever going to be the king and queen and you're not directly in line to the throne in terms of is it really going to make any difference if you're number seven or number 19, I, I think that uh, it's, it's fair enough that they go and find their own path. Um, and the focus will be on Charles and then on William and his family. So let's let's turn to the questions from our listeners now. So I've had a I've had a little peek through the book. There's all sorts in there. So if you are on lockdown, then it it could well be a good one to try and get ordered if you are still still able to get deliveries because you will come well, you out are, of it. If you can get deliveries. I've had deliveries through it myself. Um, if you will, you will come out of it an absolute boffin. I think about the royal family sections on all the all the main players, the households, the horses, the dogs, the weddings, the lots, and uh, it's twenty five pounds in the UK. So 
if you are interested. Haynes Royal Family Operations Manual by our friend Robert Jobson here. So, right, putting you to the test from our lovely listeners. Mm. So starting off, talking about the royal houses and staff, the households, which is always fascinating. And, you know, the, the, the setup with the two sons yeah. when that happened last year was very interesting. Yeah. So Christine Rippey asks, how is it decided who gets what residence? Well, that's purely down to the Queen, really, and also what's available. Um, as we saw with Frogmore Cottage, that became available um, for Harry and Meghan, but um, no, it's purely down to um, what is available at the time, and the decision is made by Majesty the Queen. But of course, the more senior you are, the, the, the more likely you're going to get the better residence. It's pretty much decided that Kensington Palace was always going to be the residence of William and um, when he's Prince of Wales, he will, will retain the residence. He won't move to Clarence House or anything like that. Um, so really, they've been building that for the future to be their main residence and their main port of call in terms of entertaining and, and their office as well. So in a way, it was quite, I think it was quite fair that Harry and Meghan decided to move out, even when there wasn't clear if they were going to go and leave and do their own thing, because the whole of Kensington Palace was essentially essentially going to be the focus of the Cambridges and the New Waleses when they become the Prince and Princess of Wales. Um, if you look at the other members of the royal family, Eugenie and Beatrice, it's, 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 they've, they've had, a resident, they've had um, apartments at St James's Palace and, the, and you've got apartments at Buckingham Palace where there's all the renovations for other members of the royal family. It tends to go on seniority, um, but the Queen has the final decision and that's why the Prince of Wales is in uh, Clarence House and Burke Hall because he inherited them from the Queen Mother. Um, beautiful, both beautiful residences. And, and I, I think that it's, that's the basic decision to come there. But um, in the book we cover pretty much, it was quite funny because I was approached by Haynes and you, if you're old enough, Haynes manuals really were made famous for the, when you were repairing your mini or your Morris Meyer or what, your Cortina, your dads or granddads would know the world. There are always those manuals that are in the garage. Um, uh, when they, you, you probably see your father tinkering away all day rather than take it to a garage. So they, they branched out into these different areas of historic manuals where, you know, you do something on D-Day or, or what was a Roman centurion and they approached me. And I thought, yeah, I'll do it because I've written several books before, um, you know, biographies and Diana Closey Garden's Secret was a number one. And I did the biography of Charles at 70. I'd never experienced anything like this, but it was probably one of the hardest books I've ever written because you're dealing with every little detail. And so when I was talking about the residences, they wanted to know the size of the residences and the amount of rooms in each residence. And when it was you know, when it was first purchased, who it was purchased by. And, and so it, all these things, even though you've been a royal expert or whatever for 30 years, you don't know off the top of your head. So you start looking for it. And the information more times, most of the time, isn't there. You have to then go through the archives to try and get the, the facts right. And it's not always easy. So I think I would have probably earned more money serving um, in a, a McDonald's by the hour, the amount of hours I spent digging around to try and find all these facts. But actually, it was an education. And after 30 years of covering it, you, you, I'm still learning more information about the royal family. So in terms of it being uh, a sort of boffin spaniel, I think that probably does sum it up quite well. After you've 
read it all and you can dip in and dip out but afterwards you do actually know things like there are you know i i should quote from the book but you know 153 rooms or whatever it is in each particular place so it's it does it does uh, it is quite a good one for trivial pursuit absolutely i think we expect to see your mastermind quite soon i think with the <laughs> royal family is your specialist subject and um, kitty kitty hublin asked actually who will move into clarence house when charles and camilla eventually leave is there a you know is there a long-term plan of who will go where well as i said there's a long-term plan for the um prince william the duke and duchess of cambridge to stay at kensington palace so i mean it's, it would have been quite possible for William to move into Clarence House. My feeling is it was always probably something that could have been left for Harry and Meghan to move into. Uh, but it's more likely, really, that the Prince of Wales will use it, I think, although this hasn't been decided, as his London residence. And Buckingham Palace will be more of an office. And um, I, th I see that going forward. Although he has said that after all the renovations that of course the royal family will move in into it. It's more of a place I think where it's so vast if you've been inside it and then we only ever see part of it when you go on the tour. But um, it's not particularly homely and I think it could be more of an office um, and a state, a, a place where the office, the royal business is conducted. In terms of a home, Clarence House is more of a home and it's only down the end of the road so if it's not being used I suspect the Prince of Wales will continue to to have it when he is king. I was thinking about this the other day actually because the Queen is obviously spending her time at Windsor at the moment and that's really closely associated with her and whether if you're Prince Charles even when you're king and fine Windsor Castle is now your castle it's so closely associated with your mother you won't you know you don't necessarily want to go live at your mum's house after she's gone well exactly i mean the fact is he loves i mean also you've got to remember the prince of wales is now well into his um it was 70 71 so the, the fact of the the matter is he will probably so used to his places i can't ever imagine him getting rid of highgrove i mean having been around the garden where he, I remember him coming and having a cup of tea with us afterwards and saying, I suppose you think I'm a bit eccentric. Well, his garden very much is like him. It's it's, it's an amazing garden, really worth seeing if you get that opportunity, which is open um, uh, once a year or uh, during periods of the year. And it's amazing to see, and it's so linked to him. So yes, I, I think that in the time he's king, he would of course use Windsor Castle and he'll use Buckingham Palace. And I still believe that, um, Places like Dumfries House and Highgrove will be um, will still remain his. Um, Anne Hall will probably be where William is as Prince of Wales. So I cannot see just because the, the Prince of Wales will be, or the new Duke of Cornwall will be Prince William, because of course you, you're not guaranteed to be Prince of Wales, which is one of the things in the book, um, that he he will probably keep those places and um, maybe open them more to the public. Interesting. Um, Jodie Lee is interested in logistics. How many staff come with them when they change houses and where do they stay? So they do have all of these multiple residences. Yeah. How does it work in terms of staffing? Well, when the Queen goes to whatever house she goes to, Balmoral in Scotland in the summer or in, at Windsor in the Easter, she'll take with her, a, the, its expression is, the court goes with her. So um, 
it's called Easter Court or, you know, and so at Easter Court, she'd have a staff with her, but, you know, at, at this moment in time, it's a more limited staff because of the coronavirus, but she'd have the staff that will come from Buckingham Palace, her personal staff, her dresser, and, and all the ones that matter like that, and they will stay at Windsor Castle um, in, res in, in the apartments there. But it's not the same as having your entire staff from Buckingham Palace. They wouldn't do that. And again, when the Prince of Wales goes to Burke Hall, he will take with him a limited staff, but probably around about seven, eight people with him, and they would stay at Burke Hall. So yes, they do. They travel, and it, they're a roving court. And also you have others that will come and stay for a while, um, private secretaries that will stay for a while. So, you know, in the case of the Prince of Wales, it will be a different, not necessarily Clive Alderton, the principal private secretary, but it would be other members of his staff and other private secretaries, as with the Queen, Edward Young won't be with her all the time, um, but he will be a, 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 on hand all the time. So do the chefs and things travel or do they stay with their original kind chefs of Chefs will travel, policemen will travel, um, but they're also, you'll find, say at Burke Hall, there'll be a housekeeper already there that's there all the time. You'll have uh, a butler, but the butler will travel with the Prince of Wales. But he has more than one butler, so therefore that person would, one would go ahead. Um, and the valet that's with him will be one going ahead, so everything is prepared. Totally period drama. Um, Susan Snyder says, what does a private secretary do for them? And also, what do they do that might be out of the norm for that role? Well, the private secretary is the key role for any senior member of the royal family. And in the book, we go through the particulars of what their role is and who has been their private secretaries. They're usually in, in office in terms of a, a monarch for something like up to about 10 years or so. They're very, very crucial people. They are um, the people that really are their chief of staff, really. I mean, it, it's a funny, strange name, private secretary. They're not sitting there taking notes or, or whatever. They are, they're, they're basically, they're the people that run their office. They run their staff. Um, and um, they're the key players who, the private secretary to the Queen, for example, will liaise with the cabinet secretary, will liaise with the prime minister, um, and uh, make sure that, that that function of constitutionality is still the constitutional implications of the monarchy is dealt with. They'll help writing the speech, that big speech that the Queen made on the coronavirus. Edward Young, who is her current private secretary, would have certainly, although it was a deeply personal speech, he would have certainly liaised in the writing with her on that, and then would have liaised with government to make sure that what was being said was, was, was consistent with her own government. So there are very important people, um, and there's been a number that have played that, that role, some of them have come through um, from the press office, people uh, in, the, in the past, um, but normally the, the, the monarch would have three private secretaries. At the moment she doesn't, but normally she would have three private secretaries through her reign um, and would, they would travel ahead for different engagements, make sure that the engagements and the, they liaise with the people that were setting those up that suit the agenda for the, the monarch. Um, and again, with the Prince of Wales, he'll have various private sectors. He has a principal private secretary in Clive Alderton, a former uh, ambassador um, to Morocco. And he has others who specialise in particular fields, such as the environment or sustainability or um, charities. So uh, along the way, he's had quite a number of people like that. But he normally has one principal private secretary. And then a deputy private secretary is normally... Um, someone from the Foreign Office who's on secondment, 
who will deal with a lot of the um, foreign travel in terms of the, the tours that the Foreign Office asks him to, to undertake and will liaise on those. Very usually a very high ranking um, uh, diplomat and, and like at the moment it's Scott Thurston Wood um, who's an excellent guy, very tall guy, but he's been with the, with the Prince of Wales for a long time now, very highly um, academic chap who was um, number two in India uh, in the embassy. So um, yeah, along the way, they have a lot of very, very senior, high-powered people to support them. Yeah. So that's kind of the very sort of formal part of the job that they're helping with, largely. Formal and, and also liaising with them on you know, if, start, if there's a particular crisis or, you know, like as we're undergoing at the moment, they will be advising him on developments that, that, that have happened. They also are the point of liaison. You don't just get the phone call that will go through via the private secretary. Okay. But it's interesting to say that when the Queen meets the Prime Minister, of course, there's no one present, um, no private secretary at all. So that's the only one time normally that the, that the private secretary wouldn't be around. Interesting. So now moving on to how the royals work together, um, Lily at Talking Royal asks, do members of the royal family have to request an appointment in order to see the Queen? Yes. I mean, the, you know, the bottom line is like with any very busy person, they wouldn't be quite so formal as that, but they, you know, meetings would have to be diaried, um, primarily because, of course, they have very busy diaries. The Prince of Wales is extremely busy most of the time and and so is the Queen so you can't just barge in I mean there'll be moments when a phone call can be made and they can arrange to meet each other like any families but yeah they most things are diaried most things are organized for obvious reasons that they're very busy people and you can't just sort of you know interrupt somebody else's meeting can't just surprise them and say hi mum fancied a cup of tea are you free well that probably does happen now and again but it's not quite in that way because um, just because of who they are. I mean, you know, they run like little firms, really. I mean, you've got to remember their diaries are worked out six months in advance. And everybody's, even though they're all part of the royal family, they're all running their own little enterprise or big enterprise in many cases. And, and then there's a lot of deference that has to be in, in, in place. The Prince of Wales is always making sure that he doesn't or tries not to clash with the Queen, because of course you don't want that to happen, and nobody does in terms of the engagements, but they have a grid system and they will try to work out who's doing what on those particular days to avoid clashes. So if the Prince of Wales is making a major speech one day, it doesn't clash with a major speech by the Duke of Cornwall or vice versa. Perfect, and that answers Kerry Davis's question as well. Because um, I think we saw sort of a, a bit of the challenge that the family potentially faces with Harry and Meghan going their own way, where there hasn't necessarily been as much coordination and deference, if you like, in, in the announcements that we've seen over the last few months. Is that fair? I think the media made a little bit too much of that because there's always going to be clashes um, along the way um, in terms of diaries. You just can't help that. Um, but I think that we've noticed a few, I mean, there was one incident, I, I felt very sorry for Megan on, um, because it was completely made, it was, it was completely wrong that she was accused of trying to um, upset or usurp Camilla. I mean, I, I was part of it. They, I was in Ireland covering the royal tour of the Cambridges and, and the palace came through and said they had a, basically a picture capture for the standing because the timing was right. And there was a picture at the National Gallery that she wanted to get over to us. 
Um, and she was doing everything possible, I think, to avoid a clash with the speech being made by the Duchess of Cornwall. But the way it was written up in the in the papers was as if that she'd done it on purpose, which to try to you know uh, uh, upset the, the Duchess, which was just not true. So I think that they've had it a bit tough in some ways. Um, others, unfortunately, they they've caused them caused it themselves. Uh, Ellen Burness asks, do all engagements get approved by the Queen for everyone? Um, she'll be aware of them, but it doesn't quite work like that. I mean, as I said, the way that it would work is there are planning meetings twice a year. Um, so the Prince of Wales, for example, will have his top team around the table and they will be telling him what engagements they've got fixed in and what he'll be doing in, in, on particular days. It's weird, isn't it? You're, you'll know what you're doing in four or five months' time. Quite difficult to believe but that's how they do it um, then those diaries will be sent that schedule will be sent um, to her majesty out of deference so that she can um, make sure that anything that she needs to schedule is scheduled at different times um, but she's the leader um, I think re in recent times the Prince of Wales in a it's not so much a quasi king it's not the right word but sort of as a shadow king really is that has been doing most of the heavy lifting of the royal family in terms of the amount of engagements. Queen hasn't travelled um, abroad uh, since the French and German state visits, and that was 2015, 2016. So um, really, he is the one who's been doing most of the um, most of that uh, heavy lifting. Yeah. So will he be requesting other members of the family, he or the Queen, be requesting other members of the family do particular engagements or say, oh, we need to go and see this particular charity or place because well, we've not been there have, for a while? No, because each of them has their own interests and their own patronages, and that's all again listed in the, uh, the Royal Family Operations Manual, exactly what they do and where they do it. But the fact of it is, is the... Um, is that they will all do their own things and then let the other people know because um, they all have very different interests and they all have different areas. You know, there are certain things, you know, tripping the colour, uh, being one, where obviously that's a diary event where they all have to be there. Usually Easter, Christmas, there's, they, they all come together um, and that's excluding weddings and other family commitments. But in terms of what they do, that tends to be worked out amongst themselves. Uh, they know what their, their schedules are. But there's no kind of giant map. I'd like to see like a giant map with you know those little colourful dots that you get in the yeah. In you'd like to, think <laughs> to see. Uh, all right, we've, there's a big gap here. We've not been to anywhere in Yorkshire for like six months. Oh we no, yeah, they'll be planning. Out. But that's where the private secretaries would get into play without direct conversations between the royals themselves. The private secretaries, the press secretaries, they will all get together and they'll know exactly what the agendas are. And so you, yeah, you're right in that respect. That grid is exactly what they're trying to achieve all the time. The perfect grid meaning that you do not get three things, like buses all coming along at once, three things happening on one day, then nothing for a week. They try to you know, spread that agenda out. And so if you've got a major speech on the environment by Prince Charles on one day, you don't want the next day a big speech by the Duke of Cambridge on wildlife sustainability. You know, there's a case of trying to work out in terms of what the message is. Otherwise you get mixed messages. And um, also, you've got, they've got to be able to liaise with government, too, um, because they, they don't want to clash with major government announcements or government issues. So, lots of interest in the media and the royal family as well. Uh, Maria Barnett asks, what press and media training do the royals receive? 
I don't know about training. I think that they tend to learn on the spot and have to learn quite quickly. But um, from, I mean, I remember <laughs> being in Closters on doing a press conference with William and Harry on the slopes. And they, one was, Harry must have been about eight or something, or William was, and just firing questions at them. We were told, they were told what to, what we were going to ask them or what I was going to ask them because I was picked for the pool. Um, and uh, William was very diplomatic when I said, who was the best skier? And William said, well, these three, and he pointed to his cousins, Ian Uchis, UG, as well as um, Harry Senna, come along really well. But the thing is, I think that they learn, on, they learn over time, um, and they've had their ups and downs in the media. But I think at the moment, with the exception of Harry, who um, we used to be very, very, have a good relationship with the media, and I do think that some of the things he's been saying, if he looks back, he, he might regret them. Um, because actually the media's not been that bad to them at all. I think online, I think some of the online stories, and I think some of the um, uh, trolling and all that stuff from uh, on Twitter has been awful, but I don't think the media were very particularly bad or, uh, about um, Meghan and, and Harry, and perhaps they should you know, look, look back at that and, and, and maybe with regret the way they went about things. But I, I think that the media also has a big responsibility in being fair and being honest and being, getting the stories right as much as possible. And in, I think that's improved over years. I mean, in, in, the, in the past, I remember my great friend who used to work for the Daily Mirror um, years ago, who's chief reporter and now passed away, was a brilliant, brilliant um, reporter, Harry Arnold. Um, and he was Royal Correspondent of the Sun and um, used to get so many exclusive stories right. But when the Prince of Wales asked him uh, where, where he gets all his stories from, he put his hands up in the air and graphs. And there's one, there's another one, as if he just got them out of thin air, which the Prince had said, oh, he thought as much. So um, uh, those were the days when it was a bit more Wild West, but they were getting the stories right. And, uh, you know, we knew, for example, in those bad old days, and um, the, the, the press did in the 90s and 80s, that there was affairs going on and um, with, Prince of Wales and Camilla and Diana with um, James Hewitt, etc. And, you know, they were getting very close to the truth being published, but it was a very much a different, different time. I think now, you know, that there's a lot more checking that goes on. It's still very difficult to get it 100% right. But I remember when I, I broke the story that Charles was to marry Camilla, which I got scoop of the year for, when I didn't ring anyone. Now, you, have, you know, I didn't ring the palace to check. I... I knew the source was correct and I had to go with it. And um, when the editor at the time asked myself and Ian Walker on the stand, who was head of news there and he's now on the Mellon line as executive editor, so where did, what did the palace say? He said, oh, we haven't asked them yet. And the, I think the editor, Veronica Wadley, went a slightly, uh, all the blood rushed out of her face. But anyway, it was right, so we were, it was a good guess. <laughs> <laughs> good piece of, good piece of air grass. But, um... I guess a different way of thinking about it because I think there's a there's a it's quite easy to push together both media training and almost like sort of public training and so someone like Kate has really come on a lot in her in her public speaking because through experience yeah through experience I think she, she I mean her public speaking I, I think that actually she was a very confident student at Marlborough College and was very well received there but it's a big difference between making us you know a big speech at school as to standing up for the first time and having the world's media um 
watching everything you do and every intonation. I remember talking to her about this and about um, in when she was going to go to Australia and the amount of people that are going to be there. And she looked genuinely shocked, that, you know, that it was going to be so many people. But I think she's, she does things, she's, she's fantastic, actually. I mean, for somebody that's come out come at this, you know, I know that she had a long courtship with, with um, William, but she has done a terrific job in the way that she's both supported him and the royal family. And I think she just about gets it right. I mean, she did a recent podcast for um, someone and I thought it, it was brilliant the way that she came across. No, that was, that was really charming. We enjoyed listening to that one as well. Um, Chloe J. Henry 11 asks, how does a member of the media become part of the Royal Rota? Now, that's a good question. And um, is this, how old is Chloe? Um, I don't know. She's on Instagram. Oh, she's number 11. Number oh, 11. I think she said she was 11 years old. Oh, no. No. She may, um, she, I think that's unlikely. Yeah. Uh, well, the Royal Rota basically is, is a, a system that was established many years ago um, to avoid having too many people covering stories in one place. Say, for example, um, the Queen is in a, in a very tight room meeting people. You can't have 15 reporters and 30 photographers inside messing around. So that what they would do is they will put one person from the organisation on the camera, one person from uh, the, the reporter, maybe a TV reporter, and then someone from the press association, the, the, the agency. Now, that's basically drawn up over many, many years, but it's usually the main organisations have, if you're an accredited royal correspondent, as I am, uh, for the Evening Standard, then I'm on that royal rotor and I cover some of those stories on the inside. There's usually a fixed point position, although God alone only knows what's going to happen with that post-coronavirus, with everyone huddled together. Um, and then you can apply for a position outside. But for the Royal Rotor position is you go inside, you then do your job as a professional reporter or photographer, and then you distribute the photographs and the words to the rest of the people that are on the Royal Rotor. And that tends to be, uh, as it stands at the moment, people, you know, we would share it with the Times, the Mail, the Mirror, the Express, um, the Sunday, and the Sunday papers too. Um, all of the people that are um, on that Rotor for the others, you know, the other evening papers like the Manchester Evening News or the Yorkshire Post, if they're on a local engagement, they might get a position on that rotor or they'll be distributed uh, or it'll be distributed via the press association that will give them that information and the pictures. But most of the shots, actually, the better ones don't tend to always be on the road. They tend to be, you know, on the street. I mean, that brilliant um, photograph of um, Meghan and Harry was taken by... Mr. Hussein was taken um, on the street where it's, the whole thing looked lit up as if it was a, a magical scene uh, with the umbrella almost alight, you know, with, with the light and the raindrops. And, you know, sometimes you just get a magical shot from a, your laddered position outside behind the barrier. So it is, currently it is the kind of the main press organisations, the national newspaper titles. Plus the lot. Press Association who will cover it for all the other titles around the world and, and and if you're a photographer there tends to be a pool system of of um, what's called black and white and color so it goes back to history really where there used to be black and white pictures for the newspapers and color for the magazines and so they tend to have two positions um, one for um, the staff 
newspaper photographers and set certain agencies and the other for the freelance photographers that are covering it in, in a different way. Interesting. Um, Emma Weiss asks, how much of what sources close to the royal family say is actually true? Well, most of it these days, because, you know, you're told when you can quote someone as a source, you're told when you can quote them on the, on the palace uh, online. I think sometimes it depends on who's writing it, to be honest. I and mean, without blowing my own trumpet, if you've been doing it for 30 years, you know, you're pretty likely to have sources. If you've been doing it for five minutes and you start breaking stories all over the place with sources, you're either very lucky or, or, and, and, they be, and, or, or and the stories are wrong then you tend to sort of have to take them with a pinch of salt. I mean, obviously, sometimes the palace will advise on information and say, can you quote it as not for quoting directly? Sometimes you'll be advised by the palace, and this is the official palace line, to go on the record. Sometimes it's not for reporting. Um, but obviously, when I say, say, for example, I broke a story, as I did, that Charles was to marry Camilla, I, I brought that from a very, very good source. I knew the source was true, so much so that I didn't bother to even put it to the palace because I feared that they would leak it or they might leak it to somebody else. And I knew it was true. Now there was always a chance in any exclusive, I think of, uh, there's a race to getting it right and getting it first. And so you want to make sure that you get it right. And in that particular instance, the Royal source was spot on. Um, so we must talk about fashion. Our listeners love a little bit of fashion. So Molly Stone asks, how does Kate manage her wardrobe? Is it all at Kensington Palace? Is there a database? Must know. <laughs> well, I've not been around Kate's wardrobe, but um, most of the, I mean, the way it's been organised is through her, her dresser and her staff. So they all know what her diary is and where she's going to be and where, therefore what clothes will she will need to be laid out obviously she'll have certain core clothes but the reality is when you go on on a royal tour for example everything nothing is left to chance so you'll leave, everything will be organized to the point where you um they know what she's going to be wearing at what particular occasion at what particular time so it's all organized and um if you if you think about it it's the only way it could work it would be absolute chaos otherwise because nobody can look that immaculate and that good all the time without it being organized Two questions together, still about, uh, still about the fashion things. Elizabeth Wyckoff says, is there a spreadsheet for what the royal family wear to events so they don't clash? And Missy MBS Gay says, is there a directive for the members of the royal family for dressing for an official appearance? Who pins the medals on the uniforms and the sashes for the ladies? Where are their clothes stored? Yes, I mean, basically there wouldn't be a, a um, we've seen clashes before. I think that they tried to avoid clashes so that the dressers was basically say to the other dresser that the, um, uh, what the particular royal principal is wearing in terms of the ladies, in terms of the colour. There are certain codes. I mean, there was a, um, you know, certain times the Queen will, if the Queen is wearing a hat, then it's expected to other members of the royal family that they will be wearing a hat. In terms of the medals, again, that'll be sorted out by the valet who will make sure that all the appropriate things have been worn. Although there have been occasions when things have gone wrong. I remember there was an incident when Prince Michael of Kent turned up to a big dinner once and he was wearing black tie instead of white tie or the other way around and he was horrified and went home and got changed. So you know, there are mistakes that happen, um, but not that often because you've got staff there to make sure it doesn't happen. 
and that's that's the point really i mean and god help them if they get it wrong but they, that's their that's their role and um, that's what they have to do last question on the fashion front before we get to the fun life away from the royal spotlight bit um Patricia Kuntz is interested to know, do we know anything about how the closets and the jewel vaults are organised at all? Well, again, that is really down. All of those things are, you know, there are specific people that have to look after the jewels, etc. And there are people that are aware of that. But really, the people that are involved in that will be the, the, the dresser to the Queen more and say, to a lesser extent, with the other royals, because the Queen tends to loan some of the more um the bigger pieces of jewelry if you, if you know what i'm saying uh, the tiaras or the necklaces so if they're being going on a particular tour you'll see that the palace will announce who's wearing what and what has been loaned to um the, that member of the royal family by the queen um the crown jewels is separate it's a completely separate thing and that's obviously looked after the um the Tower of London, there's a whole section in the book called Crowns and Coronets, which gives you all the vital statistics from the, the jeweled sword of offering to the scepter and rod and everything you need to know about that. But the particular pieces of the Queen's personal jewellery, that tends to be organised by her personal assistant, um, who is up on all of those sort of things. So we'll make sure that um, the, the press are informed as to what is being worn at that particular time as well so um yeah it's organized basically there is people that nothing again is is is, is left to chance and um they everything is well and truly documented in terms of provenance and when it was last worn and by whom etc the other thing that happens is the queen's jeweler who um is in charge of this whole area in the past there was it was um Garrard has been the Queen's jeweler, I think, and there's the, quite recently it was um, a chap out of Tunbridge Wells until he's given that up. Um, but they basically are charged, and it's quite interesting what they do. Often they remake um, the jewellery. Um, so it's quite, you know, it's quite interesting that certain aspects, certain pieces of jewellery will be remade specifically for members of the royal family. And um, so they utilise the expensive stones and um and and um and reset them or re put them in a completely different piece of jewelry i mean the, in the queen's dresser is um angela kelly recently wrote a very very good book um um uh, the other side of the coin i think it was called and and she's a very important person she's she's actually now the queen's personal assistant and senior dresser and does a lot of the, the designs of the queen and of course the queen likes to wear very bold colours, you know, because she likes out the, because she wants to stand out really and and make people it's easier for people to see her if she's wearing a bright yellow outfit or a very bright outfit, a clearly defined outfit, and if she's in pastel shades. So she tends to be dressed like that. Wonderful thing. So during the fifties and forties, Sir Norman Hartnell was the Queen's designer. And we, I was talking about how she likes to wear bright colours. I mean, she was reported to have said, once said, if I wore beige, nobody would know who I am. <laughs> Just quite fun. Yeah, she is, uh, she is the Rainbow Queen. That was an episode that Amber did actually last year, talking to Sally Hughes about the Queen's, uh, the Queen's fashion. So, life out of the spotlight. 
few listeners were interested in this. What is a day like for the Royals at home when they don't have an engagement? And Nicole, who's underscore donuts and hibiscus on Instagram, said, do they actually get normal days off, like making pancakes at 11 a.m. and then Netflix all day? <laughs> I don't know about Netflix all day, but they do. I don't think the Queen or the Prince of Wales ever get a normal day off because, I mean, the Prince of Wales is pretty much a, a workaholic. And I think the Queen, wherever she goes, she's got to read the, the state papers. She's got to she's got to be involved and be connected. But they do have their own pastimes and their own things that they enjoy. Of course, the Queen loves her dogs. She loves walking. She loves she loves um, her riding when when she gets that opportunity that she would do that. So yes, they do, they do get days off. Um, but and then when the Prince of Wales does uh, get his time off, you know, he loves to paint. Um, but I remember being up at Dumfries House with him and asking him, you know, has he been doing any painting? And he said he just doesn't get time, which probably just about sums sums up what we're saying is that they are you know very much hands-on in what they do even though when they're not uh, out on engagements they're reading up about them or getting involved in another particular charitable organization so yeah particularly with the prince of wales i think he doesn't get a lot of time um andrea kavanagh asks how hands-on is kate with her kids in the day-to-day -day of life with cooking and playing and things and i guess we could add william into that as well well they both try to be i know that um, both William and um, Catherine try their hardest to spend as much time. You know, it is very difficult if you're in the public eye, and I think Princess Diana found that very, very difficult. As did Her Majesty the Queen when she was young, but she didn't get enough time with the children. I think both um, William and uh, Kate really decided they want to be hands-on. If you remember, I think with um, Prince William said that in an interview that he wanted to be a hands-on dad, and he. I, mean, I know for a fact he had dropped the kids off at Thomas's in Battersea, then he'd go maybe for a bit of gym work at the Harbour Club afterwards when he, has, when he hasn't got particular engagements on. And when they're away, I think they miss the kids very much because that interaction is, is difficult. Is not having that interaction is difficult. But no, they are pretty hands-on. And I think that you saw um, with, with Catherine in particular, she's very much an outdoors girl and she was designing those gardens. It was very much what she would try to encourage her children to get involved with. And you get the sense that she's often out in the garden with them, yeah. Amy, uh, who's Alan DeWittler on Instagram, interesting name, says, do they really have a big family WhatsApp group as Mike Tyndall suggested that they do? Ah, you've got me. I, I mean, there's a suggestion on that. Uh, Mike Tyndall has said they do. Um, I would have thought that that was given the problems they've had with phone calls being hacked and tapped it's not the most secure way to go about business. So if they do, I'm not so sure that the main players will be on it. Might be one more for the younger generation. Although I think that the Queen has been keeping up with technology a lot and has been having to learn new skills now as well it, as she's in isolation. It may be, but if you remember all those that the, the, the Camilla Gate and the Watergate or whatever gate it was in the in the 2000s and 1990s, that I don't think it was particularly wise to sort of have a WhatsApp gate and that. That's why I would say it doesn't sound overly secure to me. Indeed. Um, last one from our listeners. Cara Menendez says, do they ever truly let their hair down when they're together? And what does that look like? <laughs> I'm absolutely sure they do let their hair down. And to be honest with you, when they let their hair down, it's none of my business, I think. I hope that they enjoy themselves, dance around the room and... Um, 
have a good time because everybody's entitled to their their private moments absolutely so finally just to just to sign off obviously even more details about all of this in your in your book um available from haynes.com haynes is an h-a-y-n-e-s if you didn't have a dad who was fixing up his Ford Cortina in the garage when you were little and unfamiliar with the Haynes manuals. It was one it's of the a... last ones that Mr Haynes, who sadly passed away, um, commissioned. And it's an area that he got involved with because, of course, cars started to be, have all very, become very computerised and, and things like that. So he can't really fix them himself. So he diversified into other areas of history. But what I thought I might do, and I don't know, I'll, I'll liaise with you after the show, but... If we, so we could set a question and I can give away five signed copies of them. All the way through the book, there are loads of um, little things like, did you know? And these are things like little questions and whatever. So I can ask a did you know question. And if in, the first five people who have got the answer or who come on to you afterwards, or even the ones that you've been asking the questions, we, I don't know, it's entirely up to you. Um, we can uh, give away five signed copies if you want. I, mean, I don't know how or when I can get them to you, but as soon as the um, as soon as the coronavirus is uh, makes it easier, I'll make sure that you get them. But oh, I that sounds like a fabulous the, offer. Uh, okay, so who was this? Is one here? Who was the the Queen has had? Prime Ministers from Winston Churchill to Boris Johnson, and it'd be good to wish Boris all the best as he's covering in hospital. But who was the only Prime Minister that she had that served her in two different periods of time? So who was the only Prime Minister she had? So that it not like three consecutive times like that, Mrs Thatcher, but who would who who served her? Then there'll be another Prime Minister, and then he or she returned. And that's the question. Excellent, excellent. So finally, to, to finish up, is there a favourite little factoid that you discovered that has really stuck with you from the research that you did? There were so many, I must be honest with you, and um, it was a joy to research. I hope it's a, a joy to, to read. And what's so funny about it is that there were so many little facts in terms of like the history when you're going through doing things about the history of the, the royal family and uh, tracing the, uh, the the lineage and all the different things um, ab about the royal family, but really not not one in particular. There was one moment that was wonderful in the book, which I I, I will say now. On page seventeen, a friend of mine's little boy was um, at this engagement. It was the Queen's first engagement back in after the Balmoral in October twenty nineteen at the Hague Housing Trust Estate in Morden, and. Um, she was there, <coughs> and my, my, my friend's son was about 10, and he was messing around. I gave him my camera and said, I'll go and take a picture of the Queen. <coughs> and uh, he did, and he took a wonderful picture of her looking straight down the, um, the lens, which I managed to publish in the book, because she must have been shocked that there was this little paparazzi boy, about <laughs> 10, with this huge cannon shot, this cannon shot, until he was eventually moved away. His name's George. George Emerson, when he was eventually moved away by the security, uh, when they'd had enough of him. But, but it made a very good picture because she's smiling straight down the, the barrel of the camera and, and, and laughing. So it did make me laugh, that particular moment. But there are so many um, 
things in the book actually that are different and it was a completely different type of book to what I'd written before when you're writing a um a biography or you know or anything like that and what's quite nice about it is you can keep going back and reading about different areas um from you know not the, the order succession to what particular royal cars there are and all the vital statistics the coaches the, the what funny little odd jobs there are as well um in the royal family and there was a few there that i thought were really strange you know really quite odd little jobs one of them being um where is it now the pot washer in 2016 buckingham palace advertised for somebody to do the dishes the successful applicant receives an annual salary of 17,000 with a room in the grounds i should think you'd need it because otherwise you'd have nowhere else to live um, on 17,000 there but there's all sorts of little details about um other jobs there are from the warden of the swans to the piper to the queen and um, yeah, I found it all quite interesting, actually, even after 30 years of covering the royal family, um, delving really deeply into some of the facts and figures was very, very interesting. And I hope people enjoy it. It means that when you're at a dinner party and you say your specialist subject is the royal family, you'll probably have a fact that will, will blow them away. And it sounds like we might see George on the Royal Rotor in years to come. It sounds like he's a budding little photographer. Robert, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise and answers with our listeners and the stories from the back in the day. Yeah, and if anybody, as I said, if there are people that are, um, can answer that question, they can send it all through to you at the uh, Pod Save the Queen, and then you come back to me and I'll make sure that we get them off to the people signed as soon as is practically possible. So yes, that's right. We have five signed books to give away. Thank you, Robert, for that kind offer. If you want to enter the competition, go to www.mirror.co.uk slash manual and it will take you straight to the entry form. So fill it all out there. If you've got any questions, email us, podsavethequeen at trinitymirror.com and we will do our best to reply. Um, usual mirror terms and conditions for competitions apply, but fill out the form. All of the details will be on there and good luck. So that's it. I hope you feel like your questions have been answered. I know sometimes when you listen to something like that, you're just left with even more questions like, oh, but now I want to know about this. And as I mentioned on the episode I recorded in the week with Russell, there were a couple of questions that did arrive after we'd already spoken with Robert, but I will be putting them to Russell in the coming shows. So we are always here to try to find out exactly what is going on and answer your questions and give you a different little bit of insight into the royal family who we all enjoy watching um, and seeing how they how they live their lives and the work that they do so if you if you if you can't wait to see if you've won the competition and want to get your Haynes Royal Family Operations Manual already. Robert Jobson's new book, it's available from www.haynes.com. That's Haynes, H-A-Y-N-E-S. Recommended retail price, £25. So anyway, I think that's enough for this week. Lots, lots and lots of things to think about. I hope we have entertained you and diverted you a little over the last probably an hour or so by the time we've stuck it all together the internet did go jumping in and out while Robert and I were recording as we deal with things in these interesting times but anyway enough of that 
I hope wherever you are, you are safe and well, and we'll be back very soon for another episode of Pod Save the Queen. But until next time... Pod Save the Queen! Queen!